Welcome to the Read, Talk, Grow podcast, where we explore women's health topics through books. In the same way that books can transport us to a different time, place, or culture, Read, Talk, Grow demonstrates how books can also give a new appreciation for health experiences and provide a platform from which women's health can be discussed. At Read, Talk, Grow, we use books to learn about health conditions in the hopes that we can all lead happier, healthier lives. I'm your host, Dr. Denise Milstein. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, where I practice women's health, internal medicine, and integrative medicine. I am always reading, and I love discussing books with my patients, my professional colleagues, and now with you. Today, we're going to be talking about opioids and the opioid crisis, and I'm so thrilled to introduce my two guests. Beth Macy is a Virginia-based journalist with three decades of experience and an award-winning author of three New York Times bestselling books, Factory Man, True Vine, and Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. Her first book, Factory Man, won a J. Anthony Lucas Prize, and Dope Sick was shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal, won the LA Times Book Prize for Science and Technology, and was described as a masterwork of narrative nonfiction by the New York Times. Dope Sick has now been made into a Peabody Award-winning and Emmy-winning Hulu series on which she acted as executive producer and co-writer. Her newest book, which will be the focus of our conversation today, is Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis, which was published in August of 2022. Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is Dr. Holly Geyer, who's an addiction medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Her work focuses on care of complex patients in the hospital with a focus on quality of life, and the best use of non-drug interventions for treating symptoms, including pain. Dr. Geyer is active in research, patient advocacy, and healthcare policy at the state and the national level. She's well-published in highly impactful scientific journals and book chapters. She additionally serves as the medical director of Mayo Clinic's Occupational Health Program in Arizona, and she has a forthcoming book, Ending the Crisis, Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use, which is to be published in January of 2023. Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Denise. So I want to start with a quote from the introduction to Ending the Crisis, Holly's upcoming book. She says, we wrote this book because our world has been fighting the wrong battle. It is time to stop battling against opioids and fight for everyone impacted by them. That line bowled me over, Holly. Thank you for starting with that concept. You're welcome, Denise. I, I don't know if we could more thoroughly state the idea as we've taken on the war on drugs. Who's been losing? It's you, it's me, it's our kids. You know, for the first time in my life, I, I took my children trick-or-treating a couple of weeks ago and hidden in my back right pocket was a, a vial of Narcan. Where are we at in society when we've degraded to that level and how do we move away from it? That's really what the purpose of this book was. How do we put the resources in the hands of the patients and the providers to get us out? Well, anybody who's read Raising Lazarus or who will read your book will know what Narcan is, but maybe I'll just pause there and let you tell our listeners who aren't familiar with it what it was that you had in your back pocket. 
Yeah, so opioids are known to cause a decrease in your respiratory rate to the point that you die. In fact, as we call it, an overdose, um, that's actually the number one killer amongst the drug classes in America. And it's scary. We can reverse it. We use a medication called naloxone, also commonly called Narcan. And um, friends, families can carry this with them. It's easy to get from most pharmacies in America without a prescription. And you deliver that, it'll buy you up to 30 minutes of breathing time before EMS or emergency services can get there. So it's a tremendous tool. We remember the days of having to sort through our children's candy, or actually it was when we were children and our parents had to sort through the candy. And now you're so mindful to be thinking about everybody around you and what could be happening. Before we started recording, you were talking to Beth and about the impact of her work. It's so true. Um, Beth has been a titan in the field of opioid stewardship and awareness of the complications that have come from opioids. I can tell you, as I teamed up with my two um, managing editors for this book and we helped develop the content, we referred to the works that she's done over and over. And Beth, I would say to you, thank you for standing up in a world that's likely to silence this because of the stigma associated with addiction. Call attention to it. Point the fingers, honestly, where they belong in a lot of situations and tell society, if we're not addressing this topic, then it's the next generation's problem. We attributed so much of the success of our work and making these solutions tangible to the things that you had done in yours. So we appreciate you. Thank you so much for saying that. That's means a lot to me. Well, Beth, you had incredible success with Dope Sick, not only as a book, but then also in multiple media. But your most recent book, Raising Lazarus, is really quite hopeful. Tell us a bit about how the book process was different for this one. Sure. When I finished Dope Sick, when I finished the last rewrite, I should say, after I finished it, it was legal, reviewed, edited, everything. The young woman whose story I had been following for two and a half years, ends up murdered in Las Vegas. She had resorted to sex work in order not to be dope sick. And, you know, I knew there was a chance we might lose her, I thought, from overdose. And it really illuminated how hard it is for people to access care. We have an 87% treatment gap in this nation right now. That means that only 13% of folks were able to access evidence-based care in the last year. I mean, that's an F. And I was so despondent over losing Tess and just how many barriers that people with this treatable medical condition were facing that I didn't want to write about it ever again. My husband said, you should write a cookbook. And I went out across the nation talking about Dope Sick. You know, it was purchased to become a Hulu series. I started hearing about really innovative things. Now, they were, of course, outliers because we still have this 87% treatment gap, but they were amazing people that I found that I profile in this book. And the idea was, as I pitched the book, as this opioid litigation settlement money is starting to come to communities, communities need to be educated on what the best most evidence-based ways are to spend it. Because we know that the largest group of people with OUD or opioid use disorder uh, don't think they can get better. They don't wanna stop using drugs. Largely, they don't think they can get better is because they haven't been able to access care. They have been stigmatized, stigmatized, stigmatized every time they've tried to access it. And so 
what I'm doing here is writing about the heroes, the people on the ground that are working to reach this hard to reach population and to envelop them into systems of care. I want to talk about that term you just used, which is OUD, opioid use disorder. Holly, you talk about that a bit in your book as well. I think terminology is really important when we're talking about any mental health or, you know, certainly what's been termed addiction. Give us some perspective from the hospital side, how important it is to call this opioid use disorder versus other terminology. Really good um, perspective on that, Denise. You know, historically, when we think about addiction, we've relegated it to other fields besides the medicine field, right? That's a, a social problem. And if you're a person who works in the judicial system, it's a criminal problem. If you're a mental health personnel, addiction is oftentimes just a mental health problem. If you're in the, the spiritual or pastoral field, it's oftentimes just a spiritual problem or a deficit in a relationship with um, a a higher power. Everyone's looked at it from their silos. But as the opioid ed- epidemic unfolded, what we started to do is really get a better understanding of the science that bolsters addiction development. And what we've come to realize is this is primarily a biological disorder, very similar to diabetes, to heart disease, to many of the other things that don't carry near the weight of stigma. And what's more important to understand, Denise, is that everyone is at risk for opioid use disorder, also synonymously called uh, addiction. It can happen to you and me. That's why reducing the stigma is so important. The more we understand how this has biological drivers that are influenced by all these other fields that I mentioned and manifests in those other fields, the more I realize that treatment of it includes biological treatments, right? Those that target the body, as well as psychosocial and spiritual treatments, because all those other areas are impacted. Beth, our audience can't see you nodding, but I see you (laughs) nodding and jotting down notes. What she's saying is clearly resonating. Absolutely. I mean, to go back to Tess and the spirit of Tess Henry, like just hovers over this entire book. The first time I interviewed her, she told me how she had been overprescribed at an urgent care center for a simple case of bronchitis, walks away with two 30-day prescriptions for opioids. And she said, what we need is urgent care for the addicted. She didn't know what that was because she had never seen it or experienced it. I didn't know what it was because I had never seen it. Now I'm starting to see it, but we're not offering it to scale to match the scale of the crisis. That's why I felt it was so important to really go out with these pioneers and innovators who are doing things like through the context of needle exchange and harm reduction, offering low barrier buprenorphine to get to your point about biological solutions. We know that buprenorphine and methadone are the gold standard treatments for this disorder, just the way insulin is for diabetes. And also you mentioned psychosocial support, so important to this group of folks who have been so stigmatized and so on the margins. I mean, this young woman reduced to living in a minivan with a pimp and doing sex work in order to buy her 
drugs, which she perceived as getting well, which was the opposite of being an excruciating withdrawal. I mean, that's why I call dope sick, dope sick. It's an in-your-face title, but it's what people call it. And this should be an in-your-face thing. If people can understand that at the end of your journey, you're not doing drugs to get high, you're doing it so as not to be dope sick. I mean, I think that really helps break the stigma. You see a lot of people in the hospital, Holly, who are so sick from the withdrawal symptoms. For people who aren't familiar with us, with that, tell us what that looks like. Oh, goodness. It, it's something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, Denise. Beth has really highlighted the evolution of addiction because when we start using opioids, it's oftentimes for legitimate reasons. In fact, legitimate reasons are the number one reason people ultimately turn into more chronic use, which can occur over weeks to months. And that state of chronic use is when we start seeing changes in the brain that it really inhibit their ability to make decisions for their own. The brain is out of control, the drugs are in control. And because of that, use after use after use makes the body very habituated to it. When those drugs are no longer available to the body, all of a sudden you go into something called withdrawals and that can manifest in a variety of ways. But the ways I've heard it put is it's the worst searing pain you've ever been in your life. And it's top to bottom. It's uncontrolled nausea and vomiting. Your body feels like it's crawling out of itself. It is the number one reason, Denise, that people choose not to seek treatment because they know if they're not gonna get something that reduces those withdrawals, it's gonna be the worst experience of their life. And honestly, the addiction and the cost to every other aspect of their life, including their families, their kids, their jobs is worth it in order to avoid mm -hmm. this uncontrollable situation. And the cost to society when we don't provide these evidence-based treatments is incredible. I mean, what does a typical case of endocarditis cost taxpayers? I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, we've lost a million people since OxyContin came out in 1996, a million. New data just showed that we were undercounting the number of folks with OUD by a factor of four. We actually have 7 million people addicted, more than that. Until we start meeting them where they are and at those junctures where they come to us, for instance, in the ER when somebody comes in with an overdose or an abscess, and not just putting a Band-Aid on their wound or giving them Narcan, but then treating what the real problem is, which is their OUD. Not to pick on medicine, but since we're with this esteemed Mayo folks, 8% of doctors have been wavered to prescribe buprenorphine. And very few of those who've been wavered actually do it. People don't want those difficult people in their waiting room. Do no harm, we have got to start going to them. So I tell the story in Raising Lazarus of an ED director, Dr. John Burton, and he's over five hospital EDs in Virginia. It's one of the largest nonprofit hospital groups in my region. You know, and when I first interviewed him in 2017, he said, buprenorphine? No, that's just treating a drug addiction with another drug. That's not our purview. And then two years later, in one week, he got all of his docs wavered so that 24-7, you could come into his ED, you could get your immediate, you know, if it was an overdose or an abscess, but then he would leave, you would leave with a temporary prescription for buprenorphine, a peer coach to help you along the way, somebody you met in the hospital who's in recovery, and an appointment to an outpatient opioid treatment 
for within the next week and they've had stunning results and you can hear his voice changing he's not pessimistic about it he's hopeful for the first time and now he's going around being an evangelist for this way of practicing because he's like everybody should do it and so one of the things i wrote about recently was how i hope that the senate and congress will pass the mat act which would take this onerous waiver requirement away and so that all doctors could prescribe these life-saving medicines just as all doctors can prescribe oxycontin without getting a special waiver i think that's kind of the low hanging fruit of this i also think needle exchange is another big thing that we could be doing at a larger scale what about you holly what do you think are like the most important things Oh, I think you've nailed two of the biggest ones, um, Beth. You know, making access to MAT more available is a big missing link. Even in our own institution, we've recognized that as being an issue. And when I've gone to colleagues and said, what's your limitation? Why have you been hesitant to go forward with that? The number one response I get back is, I'm scared of taking a patient who was legitimately put on opioids, who now uses it for pain, but clearly has overlapping features of opiate use disorder, and calling them an addict. One of the biggest concerns out there is that as we have patient satisfaction ratings now influencing reimbursement from the government and national scores, how will honestly, finally identifying and treating this population impact the institution. And that's never, ever the right answer. Our patient should and will be the focus in all this, but it's a limitation. So I would say to providers out there, the reality of addressing this is that you get a whole person out of it, right? By moving them into the right environment, we're treating not just them, but their families, because the influence of addiction is never that one person. Mm -hmm. It's everyone. I had one family member tell me once, she said uh, her son struggling with addiction was worse than her son being dead. She said, because uh. with her son being dead, at least someone in this equation would be out of the pain. And if we think about this deeper, there is such opportunity, like you said, to, to move into that arena of um, patient education, which we're trying to do with the book and provider education at the same time. I just wanna restate how important raising Lazarus is by putting it in the framework of this story. So for people who are listening, who don't understand these topics, really the way you've written the book, Beth, is so readable. And you talk about the importance of people like us who work in a clinic or a hospital setting, but you feature people who go forward with what those with OUD need, whether it's needle exchange or pizza or other ways to reach the population, literally, even if that means meeting them in a, I think it's a McDonald's parking lot that the book mm -hmm. starts in. Yeah, the book starts in a McDonald's parking lot next to a nasty dumpster, wherein this nurse practitioner who is volunteering at night after he's worked all day at his FQHC, treating addiction and HIV mainly, he volunteers with this harm reduction group called Olive Branch. So somebody who came into one of their three needle exchanges express interest in on getting on buprenorphine, but he works during the day and he doesn't have the wherewithal to get to the clinic. So the idea is low threshold. They meet them where they are literally next to a dumpster in a McDonald's parking lot. The guy shows up late, high, he's crying. He's a broken face mask dangling from one ear at the height of COVID. And 
Tim talks to him. He is going to, the next morning, he's going to prescribe uh, low-cost buprenorphine through, which he's prearranged through his clinic. But he tells him two things. And these are really, these two things, I think, are, are the crux of raising Lazarus and really the crux of the solution. So one thing he says is, you can get better. Most people think they can't. Most Americans have written off this population. We have to have hope. We just do. And two is, don't disappear, he tells Sammy. Even if you return to use, if you have a bad week, still text me and I'll meet you here next week. And if your car breaks down, which often happens, text me and I'll come to you. And so that's this idea of we're not going to kick you out if you have a return to use. I mean, that happened to Tess. When she finally did get access to buprenorphine, she tested positive for marijuana a month into it. And rather than increase her counseling and increase her treatment, they kicked her out, which sent her back to the streets, which ultimately led to her death. And so this idea of non-judgmental, loving care. I have this whole section that I read when I speak to medical groups. I read this section of Tim had invited me to his FQHC during the day where the woman who runs the front desk is a peer, a peer recovery specialist in recovery for seven years. She could have an office in the back, but her whole job is to be the first point of contact. And I watched this woman who I, it turns out, I learned later, she lives in a tent. She's borrowed somebody's car to get to the appointment. And this peer who is the front desk person just envelops her in love. Hi, honey, I'm in recovery too. What can I do? Oh, we have a sliding scale. It's just nothing but love. And that woman has now been sober for eight months. She's no longer living in a tent. She has relationships with her family again for the first time in her whole adult life. And so you see over and over, does it work the first time always? Maybe not. But it's this idea of, as somebody, a doctor from 1926 said, for the secret of patient care is to care for the patient. It's putting humanity back into our institutions. Treating people with kindness and dignity, meeting them where they are, and then helping them get access to the tools that exist, but there are so many barriers for them to reach them to actually get better is so important. Let's talk a little bit about how dangerous the streets are now, right? So many people with OUD started with prescription pain medications and for any number of reasons have now started to use street drugs often to prevent them from getting sick from their withdrawal, but it seems like every month that becomes more and more dangerous. Holly, talk a little bit about what's going on these days. It's scary out there, Denise. <laughs> um, you wouldn't find me purchasing anything off the streets these days. We've looked at the data and originally before the height of the synthetic opioids, which are those that are made in clandestine labs, you know, behind Walmart parking lots being stirred in cans by non-pharmaceutically trained individuals, we recognized that heroin was really the big drug of abuse. And studies showed that 80 to 90% of people that moved over to heroin started with legal prescriptions from their providers for real medical indications. 
I don't think we have a lot of great data on who's starting to use all of these synthetics, which really took off around 2013 to present. But I can tell you they've emerged as the dominant and the number one cause of death associated with opioids. You know, they're 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And you take one dose of those thinking it was an oxycodone or something else you're more familiar with, you're dead. Yeah. Or a Xanax or even cocaine has fentanyl in it. You nailed it. There was a, a big trial in Minnesota for someone who was ordering, I believe it was some kind of a, a weight loss pill right over the mm. internet and didn't realize that it was um, fentanyl tainted. It is everywhere these days. Yeah. I was in Baltimore a couple of weeks ago giving a talk and somebody from the public health department said that fentanyl was selling for a dollar a pill in Baltimore. One of the things I like to say is we have to make the treatments easier to access than the dope. And if the dope is a dollar a pill, we have to make the treatments free. We have to come up with a way to scale the treatments similar to what we did at the height of HIV and AIDS with the Ryan White CARES Act, where people who couldn't afford antiretrovirals were given access to that. So I really like to see the AMA and other medical leaders kind of step into that space for advocating for that. You know, we still have 12 states that haven't passed the Medicaid expansion, and that has proved to be the number one tool for getting people on buprenorphine. What do you think about that, Holly? Am I right on that? So I'll say two things. Number one, to most of the world, you're speaking heresy. And number two, it is our answer. The reality is that when we offer people an alternative at these booths, at these sessions where they can pick up and do things like needle exchanges, that might be our only point of contact before their next overdose. Mm -hmm. And the data shows that this works as opposed to letting someone use needles that have been used over and over and, you know, these harsh environments where they sleep in 20 degree weather and lost everything when they can go to a place that they know offers a safe needles to prevent secondary consequences like HIV and hepatitis C and then B have someone standing there saying listen this is safe and here's naloxone or an opportunity to help reduce or reverse your overdose if it happens and C here's treatment program opportunities can we enroll you today this is how we get people out of those harsh situations. And it's just like you mentioned before, meet them where they're at. Yeah. They often won't come to us. And yet you use the word heresy, and that's because it's become such a political hot button. I report in the new book on Charleston, West Virginia, has the most concerning HIV outbreak, according to the CDC, in the nation. And the state legislature there has basically outlawed needs-based needle exchange. And so you have these warriors who are like risking their freedom to deliver needles to people because they've decided that saving lives is more important than getting arrested. So it, it's um, a really thorny political problem, so much of which I think the answer comes down to educating people. Like I would love it if I could just take every American and have them be a fly on the wall of a needle exchange because people think it's this big scary place but it's not. There's like inspirational quotes on the walls. There's computers where people are applying for jobs, sort of like a library with some health services, signing people up for Medicaid. I mean, and you see everyone there from people wearing Trump hats to people wearing Grateful Dead t-shirts. I met a young woman who was living unhoused and she said, oh, I read your book, Dope Sick. But when I fell asleep at night, somebody stole it from my tent. Just love. I don't mean to sound like 
namby-pamby about it. These aren't bad people. And if people could look at a person that they see being unhoused and living in a way that they're judging so harshly and see that, well, before this, and often before a prescription written by a doctor, they were a person, they had a house, they had a husband, they had kids. They were just like me and you. And we're all just one like accidental trip down the stairs from possibly being in that same situation. What a good way to put it, Beth. Honestly, we're a Mayo Clinic. We follow the evidence. If we saw that the evidence for harm reduction strategies like needle exchanges increase the rate of use, we would say no. The data shows the reverse. And we're seeing the same thing with the stigmatization of medications like buprenorphine or methadone. I used an example in our book. If you had a major heart attack and you went to a cardiologist and that cardiologist said, listen, we know that your cholesterol is high. You're in a bad situation, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a donut every day, but you have to take our donut. And I promise you, your chance of having another heart attack is lower. You'd probably go back to your family and say, I've got a doctor, but he's giving me donuts. Is this the right thing to do? And that that's the shock value of what we're seeing in society right now by offering the equivalent of an opioid to people with opioid use disorder but it works. The types of opioids that we use prevent the highs and they prevent the lows. They help people live in that middle ground. And I can tell you with chronic use of opioids, what happens is when you take an opioid and you get that surge of what we call dopamine or your happy chemical, the brain responds by having receptors accept all those chemicals. The more chronically you use those opioids, the less receptors you have, which means all of a sudden, when you go to hug your kids or you play with your dog outside, the tiny little amounts of opioids you make yourself have almost no impact, right? That's not how you're going to get your pleasure. Plus add in all the withdrawal factors, people are scared. MAT, buprenorphine, methadone binds to those receptors and helps your body heal naturally. So it's a great solution akin to treating someone with blood pressure problems with a blood pressure medication or diabetes with a medicine that helps the body take in the insulin it needs. It's a good solution that reduces problems and helps society function. Who would be against that? I think you both have made an excellent point though about the need for reframing. And that's why I'm so thrilled that these books exist, that people can start to think about it from multiple aspects instead of being stuck in the stigma, stuck in the history, stuck in their biases, which they maybe don't even recognize they have. One of the first questions I was gonna ask you guys is who does this touch? And I think we got jumped into all things like Narcan and uh, risk-reducing strategies. But if we just backed up to that original question, it's everybody is touched by OED, whether it's you who has the disorder or somebody you love, somebody in your community, somebody in your practice, it is everybody. Would you both agree? Absolutely. 100%. People don't see it as their problem unless until it hits them personally. We now have one third of American families, honestly, I'm surprised it isn't higher than that, have experienced strife in their family because of OUD. We ignore it at our own peril. And also the cost. I think they, they have determined we, we spend more than a trillion dollars a year on the downstream effects of this and lost productivity. I agree, Beth. Um, its impact has been tremendous. And in our book, we go into great detail to outline how each person in society plays a role in getting us out. If you're a family member, my gosh, make the intervention. And it's not easy to do. We help talk people through how to do that. If you're a person seeking treatment, 
engage that family practice provider, or your, your internal medicine doctor, have those harsh conversations. And if you're in the legislation arena, if you're a, a mover and a shaker higher up in society, my goodness, please look at the level of evidence to support your decisions. Yes. Things that seem scary with the sticker shock um, can actually be your greatest solution right now. Yeah. And then of course, the funding for all of this, it's out there. It's uh, smuggled covertly out of drug companies into certain initiatives, but but it could have a much more blanket effect if it was used wisely targeting those areas that would most benefit. Right. I worry about the litigation money being squandered, aka the tobacco settlement. And I worry about it just landing in the hands of police departments that believe in incarceration first rather than diversion to treatment when we know that works so much better. And I worry about it landing too much in abstinence only programming. We need to be bulldogging what, what happens with this money. The press, you guys, mm -hmm. we all need to be paying really careful attention because this is a once in a lifetime chance to get to turn a real problem around. And Beth, you've, you've just made a comment there that I think is so key for our audience to know. Abstinence-only programming is a no-no for opioid use disorder. 90-plus percent of all people that choose abstinence-only programming will be back on the drugs within one year, if they're alive at that time. Right. With Which fentanyl, we can't guarantee in this. Will you talk a little bit about the whole let them hit rock bottom thinking? Because we've really shifted away from that. I hope so. We're still struggling with it. The concept has historically been let people live with their consequences early. Don't force them into situations where you believe, you know, they would benefit from treatment, but um, don't want to make any big moves. Let them hit the bottom of the barrel before they pursue treatment. I think that we could intervene so many times earlier. You know, this is a discussion where if you're seeing maybe a loved one who's using opioids a bit more frequently than prescribed at home, have a meeting with that family member, bring them to the family doctor and sit down and say, what does addiction look like? Could it be this? If we wait till rock bottom, rock bottom might be six feet, eight feet below earth. That's not a situation that any of us are promoting. So we will say that the data does show if someone is a position where you've had to kick them out of the house because the environment's unsafe and they have hit rock bottom and they enter a criminal justice system and they get put on MAT somewhat in a forced manner, their outcomes having been forced into a position to use MAT as opposed to going voluntarily are almost the same. Um, but you, you want to avoid potential negative outcomes like medication um, overdoses before that ever happens. I think one of the powerful components of raising Lazarus is thinking if we are doing a better job of treating people with OUD, we then can harness the power of the people who have lived this experience to help others to get there as well. We just talk a little bit more about sure. that. Sure. I call the peers my rowdy angels. Somebody gave me that phrase and I was like, it's so perfect. So it's people like Ginny Atwood's Chris Atwood Foundation peers who are going into the jails and working with people and then picking them up at the moment they are released, which is when they're 
40 times more likely to overdose and die because they're opioid naive at that point and taking them to sober living or taking them to something they've been working on the whole time. The, the book is called Raising Lazarus. Um, a lot of people think it's called because of Narcan, which is that's cool, too. But the reason it's called Raising Lazarus is I tell the story of this harm reduction group. They're the nation's first queer, biracial, faith-based harm reduction group. And I meet the woman who runs it at a community meeting that gets hijacked by somebody that says, I think when they overdose, we should let them die and take their organs. The whole meeting just went south, to which Reverend Michelle Mathis stands up and she says, y'all, do you know the song? They will know we are Christians by our love. I'm not feeling the love here. And what she says to get Christians to check their blind spots, because we've been so acculturated in drug war thinking, and these people are moral failures and they're criminals, is she tells the story of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but the disciples were the ones he had roll the stone. So I have a chapter on stone rollers. These are people that get rid of barriers. Then Jesus asked the disciples to bring him out and unbind him from his burial cloths. And what Michelle says is getting close to this issue can be scary, it can be stinky, it can be dirty, but only by getting close will you experience the miracle of raising Lazarus. And I'm not a religious person, but I th just thought that was such a beautiful story. You can't dispute it. That is what the Bible teaches, to treat your neighbor as yourself. Beth, that gave me goosebumps. <laughs> mm. You know, I, I am with you. As we as society start looking at how we're going to share this information, stories are powerful. It's how we've related to each other for thousands and thousands of years. And as much data and as clinical as I can get on this topic to my peers, the number one thing that gets them is the stories that I integrate in. This is their life when they walk out their door and hang up that white coat. This is their nephew. No one's immune to the opioid epidemic. And I don't know a person who hasn't been impacted by it. So I would tell those who've been influenced by their own personal stories, to the point they feel confident to relay them to others, be bold, use it as a tool, help the next person to share theirs. Absolutely. I think a couple summary points for this amazing discussion are that this impacts so much of our society that if you don't know that your life is impacted by it, you need to look around because it definitely is if one in three families is impacted. And then an inspiration perhaps to read both of your books, but an inspiration to figure out how to become stone rollers, how to work on the barriers and become part of the positive change and the answer. I want to thank you both so much for coming on Read, Talk, Grow, for talking about what can be a very challenging topic and hopefully opening minds with this conversation and with your books. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. It was an honor to be with you both. Absolutely. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for joining us to talk books and health today on Read, Talk, Grow. To continue the conversation and send comments, visit the show notes or email us at readtalkgrow at mayo.edu. Read, Talk, Grow is a production of Mayo Clinic Press. Our producer is Lisa Speckhard-Pask and our recording engineer is Rick Andreessen. 
The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and judgment. Information presented is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional for medical assistance with specific questions pertaining to your own health if needed. Keep reading everyone.